Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. This week's episode focuses on the attempts to criminalize rave culture in the UK and the US. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. Your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Hartness to continue our discussion of Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, the history of the disc jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton, and we're up to the chapter they call Outlaw. Ryan, what was going on? Oh, I mean, this this one here is near and dear to my heart, because as a rave promoter, I got to live a lot of this outlaw stuff. And it basically comes down to, I think the, the, the book explains it somewhat well, as they say, if, uh, if these raves are illegal, then the, uh, then the DJ is, is kind of the instigator. He's the, uh, he's the one that's going to get pinned on. And uh, he does get it pinned on quite a lot, you know. He's, he's the focal point. He's, he's kind of the person that's inciting the riot. And uh, so for, for a DJ to kind of be put in that outlaw position, I dig it. And it's, uh, you know, it's pretty apt. Yeah, and, and it's, this was one of the first times where the musical entertainers were on the hook for criminal sanction, the promoters at least, and also sometimes the DJ, like you said. And so I think it's a testament to the power of the Acid House Revolution and then the rave scene that emerged in its wake in the States that these laws were so um, – just over the top. And, and, you know, I've talked with Ted Joya in his book, Subversive Music, Subversive History of Music, and, and or Music, A Subversive History. And that is a symptom of powerful music. And, and these guys are always on that, you know, let's make a big deal out of this stuff tip. And they start the chapter with this quote from Plato, of all people, that's saying, the introduction of a new kind of music must be shunned 
as it imperils the whole state, since styles of music are never disturbed without affecting the most important political institutions. And, it, you know, it sounds a little pretentious to have a Plato quote at the beginning of a chapter in a book about dance music, but it's not at all. I mean, this stuff really sent shockwaves through the political climate of Britain. And this is a country that's coming out of Thatcherism, or that was at the depths of Thatcherism when this hit. And, you know, when we talked about high energy and saw Aikman Waterman, stock Aikman Waterman, and their massive, massive success as pop producers in England, it didn't mean that much to me because they weren't that big in the States. Like Kylie Minogue had some hits and, you know, Rick Astley obviously broke through and Dead or Alive. They had hits here or there. But in England, I mean, they were wallpaper. They, they were totally dominating the scene. And so this Acid House revolution, it was it was rocking a lot of boats, including the people who sold beer and liquor. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the stock Aikman Waterman stuff was, you know, about as plastic as you could get. And it was designed to be that. It was designed to be packaged and, and sold to teenagers and anybody else that wanted to get it as well. Who cares? Like, but, uh, you know, it was designed for for adolescents with with, you know, less less taste than uh, and less sense than than maybe adults. So uh, when you have something that, that, that comes in and is authentic and it has a message and it riles up. Uh, the underclasses, then, then all of a sudden you have something that's much more interesting. Indeed. And and this is a point in time, and we're jumping around a bit. You know, we talked about all the waves of genres and subgenres that came out of the UK in the 90s. And this is going back. We're going back a little bit to the first Acid House explosion in the late 80s. And the people that started the scene, like, you know, Shum and... and um, What's the boy's own um, yeah, fancy? Yeah, boy's own. Yeah, boy's own. They held some early raves. Like, like Shu went out to Brighton and had a barn party in 1988 for 200 people. But very quickly, within the next year in 89, um, it's out of their control. And people they consider yokels and crooks and gangsters are putting on massive raves and are just showing up in fields unannounced and 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 with the massive sound system and the lights and thousands of people are showing up to these things to take x so it's no wonder that they triggered a backlash i mean they're basically just begging for trouble with what the way that uh they conducted themselves yeah i mean uh to a certain degree it's kind of one of those things that, that you understand when you're not in the midst of it when i was throwing raves and the cops were coming down on us we were like what are you doing who cares like we are not the bad guys like we are not you know the ten thousand people uh in a field partying unsafely with you know three people found dead behind a uh, behind a tractor and like five other people human trafficked off to bc or something like that but uh you know a, a lot of this stuff is going on in the context of a, of a really rough uh, societal state like all of the documentaries that you're going to watch about this summer of love is it always starts with it was you're deep in the thatcher years the uk sucked everybody was sick of life there was no community left and then this happens and and underneath it all behind it all there was there was the gangsters 
And uh, that's something that I have a hard time relating to. In Canada, we had the Hells Angels and they had their fingers in our pies, but it was never to the point where you had to worry about, you know, being kidnapped or murdered or, 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 or anything else like that. So you watch enough uh, Guy Ritchie movies. That's really the only, the only way that I have to understand <laughs> what, what maybe the UK was going through. And you say, man, even if like one tenth of this is anywhere near truth, uh, then you got to imagine once the gangsters roll in, everything got went south really quick. But it's worth noting that the Shum guys were, were were saying that everything was wrong almost from the beginning. Like they were only around from Shum only ran from eighty seven to nineteen ninety, and then they shut it down because they said you know it was too it, it had gotten out of control and everybody and and it had basically been ruined. And they had a reputation for trying them and Boys Own as well, a bit of a reputation for trying to keep the scene small while other promoters were. Trying trying to blow the doors open and, and get everybody involved in a, in a movement. So, you know, when you hear the Shum guys say uh, it, it was it had lost what it what it had meant to be, what it was lost, what they had meant for it to be. And uh, I think I mentioned this in another episode. You know, the UK scene wasn't a monolith. There is uh, a number of different scenes going on at the, at the same time. And depending on which one you went to, would tell you as to whether or not you had a higher chance of going to like a gangster party where, you know, they promise the moon and they give you maybe like a, a small rock. Uh, but uh, you, you go to some of these side trance parties put on by Spiral Tribe, and we're going to talk about the crusties uh, in, in, a, in a few minutes. Or, or you go to some of these others that are run by people who are very much, uh, you know, ravers with a capital R lifestyle wise. And uh, I feel like, you know, uh, you got the authentic experience and it was amazing and communal and, and beautiful and everything that it was advertised to be. The Shroom guys did have one quote I got to repeat, though. Nick Spires of Shroom said, raves were ripoffs run by gangsters filled with fools. So that's just such an evocative quote. Uh, I had to throw it out there. But, yeah, like they had a lot of competition. It wasn't just um, – Gangsters, though, it was also party promoters like Tony Colston Hayter, who had really been a big deal in the Thatcher era, putting on these like sort of debutante ball type parties in London. He suddenly gets into the scene in a big way. And when that kind of money and promotional talent and I don't want to cast aspersions, but, you know, this was not a guy who cared that much about the scene, I'm guessing. You know, like he was there to put on a show and make some money and get people out there once he was converted. And, you know, it's out of out of the control of these insiders and these hipsters who had started this thing. And some of the stunts they pulled, um, like the Sunrise, the mystery trip filled up 10 coaches worth of people at the BBC studios in West London and took them out to Buckinghamshire to hear DJ Steve Proctor and, you know, thousands of people. And, and hypnosis crashed the Glastonbury Rock Festival in 89. I mean, the balls to do this. They took their whole sound system to a rock festival, somehow snuck it in and just set it up. And they're competing volume wise with the main stage. And at one point, the the main um, lighting rig points on them. I mean, the fact that they got away with so much for so long and these initial raves, when they hit the countryside, the cops were, you know, sussed out pretty quickly. These weren't soccer hooligans and nobody's got <clears throat> knives or guns. You know, this seems harmless. And and so they were pretty indulgent. But then, uh, you know, once the tabloids got a hold of it, uh, the whole thing changed. But let's hear our first song. This is um, Luna C. Get it? Haha, <laughs> Luna C. Edge of Madness. This is some classic UK rave sounds from the early 90s, 1993. 
And that was Luna C at the Edge of Madness, Sublove Remix, 1993. So Ryan, tell us about that song snippet and what did the hipsters make of that kind of sound? Well, you know, there, there, there's always that split between um, the, the people who don't like anything above 135 beats per minute. But, the, you know, the, the people go into these uh, rave festivals and stuff like that. They like the higher BPMs. And this kind of this this track to me represents that evolution of the old breakbeat sound that we heard maybe in the last episode with uh, with some of the prodigy stuff. And now you're starting to hear this breakbeat hardcore, which is which is definitely fringe. Uh, it, it's a couple steps further out into the dizzy array of strange rave subgenres, but you're also hearing the production values that are showing up in even these kinds of uh, tracks. So I just kind of picked it to, to, to show that there's an evolution going on and there's a, a full steam ahead happening where even even the uh, even the kind of smaller, weirder out there, more hardcore genres are, are really picking it up production wise and there's no more cheap sounds coming out. And this is the period when the original promoters, you know, might be stepping back, but but other people are jumping in, and you know, you get you get groups like Hypnosis, who actually crashed the Glastonbury Rock Festival in '89, and just the chutzpah to do that is awe-inspiring. I mean, they stuck an entire massive sound system into a rock festival. They got past all the security, all the fences, and. You know, it was pre-9-11, so it wasn't the paranoia you have now, but still, it was quite a feat. They set up, they're so loud, they're actually competing with the main stage for volume, and at one point, the lighting crew from the main stage points their lights at the hypnosis sound system. So, for a while, these things aren't meeting much resistance. The, you know, first few times that they had multi-thousand people show up in Buckinghamshire or whatever, um, the police would show up and pretty quickly suss out that, there's no riots happening. These aren't football hooligans. There's no knife fights. Nobody's getting shot. Let's just, you know, we've got the kids all in one relatively safe space. Let's just let them do their thing. And it's ironic you know, that, uh, you know, the, the worst thing that was basically happening, uh, obviously, other than the drug use, was a couple of noise complaints here and there. So, and it wasn't until, uh, until the full the full wet, uh, width and breadth of the law like that they created out of whole cloth to 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 stomp this out came in that that really the lawlessness came in and uh, it's one of those things. It's the same, I think, in the sex industry is that once you criminalize these uh, these these areas, then all of a sudden you leave a lot of people unprotected and then criminals can come in and do what they will. And for a while, you have any of the ethical people getting screwed over again and again and driven out. And then soon you have nothing left but a void with a bunch of criminals doing whatever they want. So, uh, you know, that's my whole political piece on, on on what the effect of all of this was. It was not good. Yeah. I mean, and the tabloids are the ones who kicked off the moral panic. Once, you know, the Sun and the Daily Mirror and uh, World, uh, I can't remember the Murdoch owned um, Weekly World News. Was that the one? What was the paper? That uh, Weekly World News is bad boy. I, I yeah. can't remember like uh, all those Murdoch. I mean, doesn't he own like half of them anyway? So. Yeah. But it, anyway, they get a hold of it and there's headlines like spaced out with five exclamation points following it. 11,000 youngsters go drug crazy in field. And, and, you know, from the perspective of 2021, we're used to moral panics or we think we are, but they're on social media and you've got different you've got kind of a tower of babel thing where you've got different groups trying to have their own moral panics and sometimes different media outlets pick it up 
in the 90s, you didn't have this politicized media. I mean, it was politicized, but they were kind of a united front from the lowliest tabloid to the most prestigious paper. And there was no internet to push back. So you'd get these screaming headlines on the tabloids. You'd get these very exploitative short reports on the evening news, the political campaigns will run with 30-second TV ad sound bites. So there's no room for debate or nuance here. And it was very easy for the corporate media to set off a moral panic. And they absolutely did it. And then when you had people who were just you know, sleeping in their house next to their field, and suddenly there's 3,000 people and a massive sound system and lights and drug taking, you know, there's a constituency of people that are rightfully unhappy. So they start writing laws. They write the 1990 Entertainment Act, which increased penalties to DJs up to 20,000 pounds um, for putting on a show. And like you said, there's an immediate backlash or counter, you know, uh, unintended consequence, which was that the Krusties and the Travelers and the sort of underground New Age hippie, post-hippie groups that have been traveling around England and, you know, Travelers get conflated with the Roma, which is, you know, what's commonly called with the slur gypsy. But the in the in the British Isles, they have this tradition going back to tinkers, people who traveled the countryside and sold pots and pans, who moved outside of society. And and you know, you might have seen him in the movie Snatch, where Brad Pitt played a traveler. And so it's this this long-standing tribal subculture that's been in the UK for a long time. And there's travelers in the US as well. Don't buy, don't let them roof your house or steal your driveway um, or sell your camper. But but and not to slander anybody, I'm just just saying, you know uh, just some advice, some yeah. Yelp like advice. <laughs> exactly. But those people moved into the scene in a big way. And you know, and you had people like the Spiral Tribe that that start putting on shows and getting their sound systems. It's very similar to what was going on in Goa with the trance thing, where the, the hippies just took to this music in a big way. They just changed out their Grateful Dead tapes for, you know, uh, the latest Acid House breakbeat stuff and and you know, the, the spiral tribe got busted and taken to trial and the, the government spent four million pounds trying to convict him and couldn't get a conviction. And so the solution was, let's pass even more laws. And they passed the Criminal Justice Act, which was the first time that a British law specifically targeted a specific genre of youth music. They defined house and techno legally as, quote, sounds wholly or predominantly characterized by the emission of a succession of repetitive beats, end quote, because they didn't want to accidentally go off and shut down the Glastonbury Festival or whatever, you know, rock bands and 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 stuff. They, they wanted to target these particular things that were new and dangerous. And uh, it didn't quite work that way, but it began to. It definitely moved it into new places. People still wanted to dance. People still wanted to hear this music, but eventually they had to go other places to do that. And, you know, this is this is the point where dance music, at least in the UK, gets gets political. And, it, and it's funny because uh, rave has always had this aspirational potential that everyone feels like we're in this together and we should act like it. And there's potential here. And the free party movement out in the, the countryside, to me, kind of looked like Occupy Wall Street because it had all this potential and the numbers to do big things. But in the end, it wanted most of all just to kind of be left alone to its own devices and its navel gazing rather than affecting change. And that's why like nothing really happened. And it was only in, in the ni- early 90s when politics stepped in and tried to stomp it out that they actually came out onto the streets and, and had something that they were willing to fight for. But out of the New Age Travelers came 
you know, to me, the most political group or successfully political group is like the Psytrance and Goa trance scenes that they harness the energy of alternative lifestyles that the UK rave travelers were kind of percolating and they turned it into something worthwhile. It might be a little too granola and hippie for some people, but I think it has the best balance of rejecting modern society's capitalistic anti-community consumption crazed excesses and offers something that's more about togetherness, inclusiveness, and, you know, stewardship of the earth. That's, that's about as far as I've seen politically what dance music has managed to uh, accomplish so far. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon that we hear again and again, but let's hear another, another tune and then we'll take this across the Atlantic and find out what was going on in the States around this time. And this is Lenny D and Ralphie D doing brain confusion from 1993. And that was Lenny D and Ralphie D doing Brain Confusion, 1993. And you called this the New York Storm Rave sound. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, Lenny D was one of the key guys of Storm Rave, along with Frankie Bones and Adam X. And uh, uh, there, was, there was a big swing as far as how hard the music would get. But this is basically kind of uh, Storm Rave at its peak hard. And, uh, you know, it's New York hardcore gabber. Uh, it's it's what New York is 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 known for in, in the, in the rave scene, as far as, you know, good percolations, New York city's got a lot of that really hard gabber sound. They've got industrial strength, strength records, which is run by Lenny D. It is one of the premier North American gabber labels. And, uh, uh, I think the chap- chapter in the book talked about, you know, New York storm raves as being, okay, well, they finally purged all of that gay house sound out of their rave. So now like Vinny and, 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 and all of his friends can go out and not feel gay while they're dancing to stuff. And I don't know if I completely agree with that assessment. Uh, I wasn't in New York city, so I can't tell, uh, what was going on at the time, but you know, like it, uh, the storm rave era was the era of, of the establishment of Plur. Frankie Bones established Plur, p- peace, peace, love, unity, and respect. And I think that that was a, 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 a legitimate backbone that the scene built off of. And uh, we, it wasn't so much built off of uh, a purging of, of gay disco music because a lot of there was still a lot of house and stuff, you know, played in, 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 in various parts of storm rave parties. So, you know, I'm, I'm a bit unsure about that generality, but, you know, maybe that was the case, too. And so Gabber is a Dutch style, right? Like it starts starts out in Holland and and um, gets exported uh, around the world. And the scene in Britain moves to the clubs. Like the alcohol lobby gets the idea. Oh, there's a lot of people who want to dance to this stuff. Let's get them into the pubs, and 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 they move out. But in the states. They use this term a year zero for dance music. It's like a blank slate. A whole new generation gets a hold of this music. And literally just half a decade since the stuff was found, just you know, invented in Chicago and Detroit by black kids, it is now bleached white. Like people see this stuff as a British sound 
that's being imported and a European sound. They know about German techno. They know about Dutch Gabber. They know about British Acid House. They don't know about Detroit techno and Chicago House. Or if they do, they see it as a totally different thing. And you get this phenomenon of the candy ravers. Um, you know, as immortalized in Harmony Corinne's movie Kids, you got people with glow sticks and dyed p- pigtails and their piercings and their plur uh, signs. And you actually have British DJs who s- s- pop up in LA and New York and also in San Francisco and make this stuff happen. And that's just fascinating to me. I mean, uh, you know, hip hop managed to stay an African-American dominated genre, even while it conquered the whole pop world. But house and techno did not. I mean, you know, people like Frankie Knuckles and the Belleville three were getting their props and getting gigs in in England. But when it came back to the States, it's like they were totally forgotten. And, And to me, it's, it's a function of this music being relatively faceless. You know, there weren't videos of Frankie Knuckles all over the internet, the way there were of run DMC. So people didn't really know necessarily that this was music created by black people. I don't like the term black music or white music because I feel like music belongs to whoever loves it and makes it. But it certainly was a fascinating phenomenon. I mean, the, the whole scene got Pat Booned in the proverbial New York Minute. Yeah, and it's uh, it's hard to know. Uh, I remember in the early 2000s, there was kind of a, a vibe of, of it, you know, it doesn't matter. And uh, that that was kind of a prevailing message for a while until I feel like, uh, you know, 20 years later, we kind of realized, yes, it does matter. And we should acknowledge and we we need to recognize. But at the time, it was almost uh, considered a plus that, that, you know, it that nobody knows whether or not this was made. Who, who cares who this was made by? And, and, and nobody was paying too much attention. And if there was any kind of attention paid to uh, what what the scene was, everybody kind of took pride in the fact that uh, it was more open than, than other scenes and, and anybody was welcome, or at least that was kind of the uh, the advertising slogan for it anyways. Yeah, everybody's welcome, but the crowd's completely white. So, <laughs> you know, it was, um, yeah, it's just, just a weird sociological phenomenon that happened. And, you know, but but the L.A. scene was heavily Latin. That was that was an interesting thing. And the New York scene, the Brooklyn scene in particular, was heavily Puerto Rican and Italian-American. And so it wasn't that it was this, you know, ethnic monolith that was just passing to different groups. And um, what blew my mind DJing in America so often is I'd get into a city and, and it would be a completely Latin city or, or, or very heavily Latin slanted. When I was in Chicago, all the all the guys that 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 booked me, uh, it was they were Latin promoters, and I'd say it was maybe sixty percent Latin crowd. And uh, I just never I never realized because I I on it like you know I was like twenty three at the time. I had very you know I went down to Vermont, <laughs> and that was basically it. And then all of a sudden you start realizing like how Hispanic America is, and uh, and yeah, I give them a lot of credit for 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 being outlaws and being willing to to put their their lives or, or at the very least their freedom on the line, throwing these things in a very anti-rave society or, or environment. Yeah. And, and that was happening, you know, on the, on the coast. And then it started happening in the Midwest, spreading out from Chicago and, and yeah, it was, it was an underground scene and, and it was interesting having heard house and techno in clubs in Dallas in the eighties. Then a few years later, 
this rave scene happens and you know i worked with some some people who were into it and went and checked one out i made no connection to me i wasn't hearing the same kind of music i mean i got that it was i was still calling it techno just because i could tell it was electronic music but it didn't sound anything like the house music that um i'd seen people dance into 10 years before it sounded how- like industrial right it sounded like oh this is this is just the the natural progression of industrial and and thus we completely yeah. erased detroit and chicago and new york city's uh gay community as to their entire the entire evolution of dance music yeah, it, I definitely did connect it more closely with industrial because, you know, Nine Inch Nails was massively popular around that time. Ministry uh, had gone from synth pop to a heavy industrial sound and really had made a big splash in the rock scene that I was involved in. And so it, I definitely made connected the dots with industrial more so with others. But, you know, you look, you look down into it and the Detroit techno scene, at least, was so derived from Euro pop like Kraftwerk and Giorgio Moroder. And I bet you anything the Bell three were rocking their Wax Trax records um, as well as the Chicago house that they were buying on their field trips. I, I think the scenes are definitely very connected. And another thing I got from this book that I didn't think about or realize was that San Francisco was a high energy holdout. Like San Francisco, New York and London were the three scenes that they talked about where high energy was a big deal. And San Francisco, you know, the gay capital of the U.S., of course, high energy was a big thing. And people like DJ Doc Martin had tried to bring in house and techno in San Francisco in the late 80s and totally failed because they were just they were stuck with their high energy. And it wasn't until the Wicked Crew came over from Cambridge. So you're talking about, you know, upper class twits. And again, not to insult, just a broad generalization here. But you're talking about public school kids. And in Britain, that means private school showing up in San Francisco. And suddenly people were paying attention to it now that it wasn't seen as an American dance form that they could reject because they've got their own American dance form they prefer. Suddenly it's this cool thing from Britain and it gets tied up in this whole early nineties, uh, cyber libertarian scene. And let's take a quick sponsor break. And when we come back, we'll talk about, um, the craziness that went on in the Silicon Valley. And so, yeah, I don't know if you remember Monday 2000 magazine, but I was a subscriber and I was reading about smart drugs and heavy oxygen environments and cybernetics and how the Internet's going to set us all free. And it turns out Mark Healy, the UK journalist who came over to the States and was running Mondo 2000, he was all into this. Uh, he was a big part of, of breaking the rape scene in San Francisco. I got to tell you that there's a huge amount of authenticity that you get just from putting a, a union jack next to someone's name, whether uh, it's the promoters involved or the DJs or whatever. People were hungry to experience the real UK rave thing. And it made a difference if you had a UK DJ, especially someone whose records are in the shops here or whose name is on one of those magazines. Um, and uh, if, if you're a guy with a British accent talking about coming to my rave, uh, it's going to sound a lot more authentic and it's going to sound a lot more like what people are looking for rather than God knows what what an American style rave was going to be like. Yeah, and it's so reminiscent of what happened in the 60s when the Beatles and the Stones and, and all the bands that followed in their wake come over here, hermits, hermits, everybody. You know, these British kids who've grown up idolizing black American music, you know, the Beatles were big into Motown and Ray Charles and the Stones were big into Howlin' and Wolf and, and Bo Diddley and they were all into Chuck Berry. And some of those artists had been accepted as 
pop stars by American white kids. You know, they might buy a Chuck Berry single or maybe five or six, but five, six years later, they had forgotten about Chuck Berry. He went to prison and, you know, nobody cared. And then these handsome, stylish, foreign, sophisticated Brits come over and suddenly everybody is buying Chuck Berry records again, except as performed by Lennon and McCartney or Jagger Richards. And the same thing happens again, where this culture gets a whitewash by going over to Europe, where black American musicians are idolized and, and put on this pedestal. And then they, you know, their acolytes, their apprentices, their students get big in Britain and so big that it starts to make an impact over here. And it's the same thing. And people don't see it as a black American scene at all. They see it as this glamorous Anglo uh, European scene. And it's, it's just funny to watch it happen. It, it just goes again. to show you that how important uh, quote unquote cool is for, for a scene to get, get off the ground. And, uh, you know, we've mentioned many times over and over again that the, the most interesting new things always kind of have to happen out in the, uh, the corners and, uh, and, and far away from the main thing, because there's already something there. There's already a power center and it doesn't particularly want to give up whatever it's got going on. And there's rules and there's sounds and there's something else that's cool. And if you want to walk in and, and, and try to challenge that cool it's it's it better be you know in this case it's something already established that's coming over and you've got that cachet and you've got a piece of that in this case it's uh, being British yeah and before the internet you had magazines and you didn't have a lot of them and you had rumors and so it was easy to exoticize something that was happening across the ocean and Things had a certain glamour and cachet that I don't think it would I don't know if it would be possible to have today when, you know, every band that gets on the internet basically you can see their faces and you know their whole backstory and and uh, as soon as they're online, they're online around the world. Um, it was a, you know, it's a different time. It wasn't that long ago, but it was a very different time. Yeah, just and, to put it into context, as far as the internet goes, in 1994, I had one hour of internet a day, and I was using it on my phone line, and it was at 14.4 kilobytes. And uh, there wasn't a whole bunch of websites, and the, you know, you were. It was. I found my first MP3 on one of these sites that was just an IP address, and it took me seven hours to download overnight a song, and I paid like fifteen dollars for the AOL subscription to to get it. So it was. Uh, the, the the internet played a big part in the rave scene in America, really picking up, uh, and they kind of grew hand in hand with the more access that came uh, and the more websites that you had talking about these parties, the more you could actually have a community that grew and grew. Yeah, and, and it was a popular scene, but it was an underground scene. There were artists like Moby, I think, is beginning to make some commercial waves and, and different people like Rick Rubin at, at American... Records, formerly Deaf American, took a gamble on some techno and house music, but didn't get anywhere with it. And you know, and this is a pattern that we see over and over again. Just like Frankie Knuckles failed as a major label record producer, and Jellybean Benitez had a very mixed record. You know, they tried and tried to get this stuff to be accepted in the commercial mainstream of American pop music. But there was just so much going on. You had the Nirvana alternative revolution going on. You had hip hop uh, getting bigger and bigger. Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg are absolutely taking over. Um, heavy metal is still a force with Metallica becoming a mainstream band. So there's a lot of competition in this period. And this stuff is attracting, I think, a younger crowd and it's happening in pockets in these little regional scenes. And Florida, in Orlando, Florida, home of death metal and Disney World, 
you have a really pretty interesting scene headed up by DJ Icy. What's going on down there? Oh, it's Florida breaks, baby. And, you know, we talked a little bit about breaks in another episode, and it's, it's sad to me that it's something we didn't end up touching on more because it's a very cool genre with a lot of fascinating offshoots. Obviously, you know, it starts breaks starts from hip hop and kind of that planet rock electro sound, and it goes into breakbeat. And Florida Breaks is the best way to tell you what Florida Breaks is. It's that kind of crystal method sound where there's, you know, more going on on top of it. And from there, it turns into a big beat and electro breaks and electro clash, like forever on and on. Breakbeat is where all the action kind of happens as far as broken, broken beat music goes. Once the BPM goes up too high, there's less innovation or at least less variation, in my opinion. So, you know, if, if you're listening to, to something that's got a bit more of a, of, of a complex sound to it, it, there's a good chance that it's it's built off a, a, a subgenre of breaks. And DJ IC was one of the key guys. Micro uh, kind of did like a, a mix between uh, electro breaks and uh, techno. It was really impressive and cool. And uh, and yeah, it was there was just something about it that fit with Florida because it was warm. It was it was a it was a, an interesting rave sound. And we always appreciated getting a Florida Florida breaks DJ in. And, and Florida had its own hip hop scene that had the Miami bass sound, you know, the two live crew popularized around the world. And it was kind of one of the places where electro never died and and the run DMC revolution never quite happened. So um, the Miami bass is a big factor in this mix. And so DJ Icy is kind of bringing these breakbeats that were big in New York and big in England and combining them with that just massive uh, Miami bass sound. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of DJ Icy. This is uh, the Funky Breaks from Deep Space by DJ Icy. DJ Icy's Funky Breaks from Deep Space, actually from Orlando, Florida. But um, and I remember this stuff at the time, and and it kind of fascinated me, and it also repelled me a little bit because it had certain elements that were also used by groups like CNC Music Factory and Ace of Base and others that had become so pop and so popular. And so I would be enjoying a track, and then I would hear something and. and it just sounded so much like CNC Music Factory. I was like, what the hell is this? But now it, it makes more sense that both of those uh, artists were all drawing from the, the hip-hop breakbeat scene and, and modifying it in some of the same ways. Yeah, you can get rid of that that negative association with the with the five or six songs that haunted you through like your early 80s music uh, radio experience. Early 90s, yeah, yeah. It was – and the – omnipresence of that stuff on the radio at that time is not something you can appreciate now because you can have a massive number one hit these days and the only place somebody who doesn't want to hear it is going to hear it is if Pitbull does a Miller Lite ad or whatever, Bud Dry Ice or whatever he's advertising. I mean, that's the only time your mom is going to hear this stuff non-consensually. In the 90s, that was not the case. Everybody was going to hear it all over the place at the radio, on the radio, at the grocery store, on MTV. It was... Um, 
when something really broke big, it, it was much more omnipresent. But another thing that was omnipresent was the authorities cracking down on the scene. That happened in the States. The 90s were a big time for right-wingers and neoliberals in the States. And it starts, of course, with Rudy Giuliani in New York, who, you know, he was breaking down the hip-hop ciphers in the parks. And he, of course, cracked down on the clubs. And they resurrected these old cabaret laws that dated back to World War II, which were just an effort to tax people to pay for the war effort. So if, if you had a club or bar in New York City, you had to pay this cabaret tax and get a license to have dancing in your club. And this was designed for things like the Savoy, where you know um, the great jazz bands of Louis Jordan and Chick Webb would play to these massive crowds of thousands of people. And so they're very expensive. And Giuliani all of a sudden dusts these laws off that had been ignored throughout the disco era and just shuts down um, dancing in clubs in a big way. And then by the two th two early 2000s, you get heinous stuff like the Rave Act, which President Joe Biden was a big architect of. And it's one of these shitty bills that failed on its own merits when it was debated in 2002, but then just gets snuck into a child abduction law, again, moral panics, um, in 2003, and absolutely killed raves and club culture dead because they put the promoters and the DJs on the spot rather than going after drug dealers or actual criminals. Yeah, if you happen to run a, uh, like basically a venue, a music venue, bar club, uh, whatever, any place where anybody's dancing and you have some Vicks VapoRub that turns up or some glow sticks, there, were, there was like a, a long list of things that were basically classified drug paraphernalia. And if this, if the cops came and they found this stuff, uh, they would they would arrest you. They'd shut down the party. They'd arrest a bunch of people. They'd they'd throw charges at you. And and this is this is in the standard you know uh, horrible U.S. way where uh, a prosecutor will will basically see a party and you know if there's if there's 500 people at it and there's like you know 200 glow sticks you'll get 200 charges for drug paraphernalia at your event for a total of 300 years in jail. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's post 9/11 and. You know, the stormtroopers are out and about and cracking heads and, uh, you know, it was just craziness. And the funny thing is it didn't ultimately kill the scene at all. It it, it metamorphosized into uh, festival attractions and, and became part of the legit music business and only got bigger. But for those people that had been part of the underground that had been building this scene for a decade, uh, a lot of people just got crushed and ground under the wheels. So, you know, yeah, massive drag. I was around and active at this point uh, as a rave promoter and in touch with a lot of these promoters in the U.S. And it was really scary watching everything happen, you know, reading a newspaper or article or Internet article about a rave bust and having to message people in the cities to see if they'd been, you know, uh, wrapped up in that. And one of my partner's cousins was a part of Disco Donnie's crew down in New Orleans. And Disco Donnie is, is the guy, one of the guys who started Electric Daisy Carnival. And they got him in 2001 under that crack house law. And it really looked like they were going to make an example out of him and put him away for like 10, 15 years. And, and and fortunately, that didn't happen. And it, it's funny that you mentioned the the festival scene that everything morphed into. Disco Donnie was at the forefront of that. So you've got a, a multi-billion dollar industry now. I think they were talking about uh, – I watched a, a report saying that, that festivals in the U.S. at this point is something like a two or three billion dollar industry. Just uh, So you, you've got all of a sudden – uh, something that is acceptable now because they've they've wised up to the fact that big money can be made off of it, but here they are trying to kill it in the crib. 
as yeah. usual. Yes, uh, as per usual, and and um, yeah, so it's it's just the classic cycle that happens again and again. But and I used to be freaked out and upset by this stuff, but really reading Ted Joya and his whole the way he articulates and puts the stuff into a formal thing he calls not a manifesto, but it's just. If you go through history and you look at music scenes that shook the world, there's almost always a legal backlash, whether it's the police busting the Beatles and the Stones and planting drugs on them in the 60s or cracking down on entire scenes and promoters in a massive way in, in Britain in the early 90s or in the States in the late 90s and early 2000s. It's just this is what people do. And, you know, if, if you're involved in a exciting music scene and the cops start cracking down on you in a way that's a good sign it means you're onto something but you know yeah, buckle well, in yeah and you better be prepared to to come back when when the backlash has ended or or things go well because i can tell you through my experience storm parties in ottawa and montreal once the police have decided they're gonna shut this stuff down there's no more room for promoters who are looking to build a regular safe thriving scene you'll may, maybe manage to get like two or three raves in a row without the police interference and then they'll come and shut down your valentine's day party and throw 800 kids out into the streets at 3 a.m with no buses and it's minus 30 degrees and you know maybe a hundred of those kids will 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 come to another rave but that kind of regular disruption keeps things from growing and it, it kills a scene and as planned it ruins promoters financially so there's just you know there's there's no way to 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 be able to to get any kind of momentum and the momentum that exists nowadays in the electronic music scene is because you know at, at some point uh there was a new moral panic and people stopped paying attention and and we managed to kind of just normalize things yeah once once some adults have come up out of a scene uh you know the scene has moved on in multiple ways and there's a couple more topics that they cover in this chapter that i'd like to cover before we end and one is pirate radio which because of Britain's stinginess with radio frequencies and the and the BBC, a public-funded radio channel, there's always been a market for more radio than they had legally in Britain. And so in the 60s, um, it was a big part of the scene, these Radio Caroline and these ships off the coast of England that, that really helped the British pop explosion happen in the 60s. In the 70s, there were soul stations, Radio Invicta, that that are broadcasting the, the jazz funk uh, and rare soul um, sounds that were big in the 70s and 80s and, uh, you know, rare groove stuff, LWR and Kiss FM in the 80s. And then there was just an opening. All these sta other stations took themselves off the air. These existing pirate radio stations took themselves off the air because they wanted to go legit. And so that was an opportunity that people like Centerforce seized on in May of 89. They start broadcasting all the projects in Stratford in London, the first 24-7 house, acid house station. And that becomes an enormous part of the evolution of Jungle and UK Garage that they evolved as much on air as they did in the clubs. And this is something we saw in Chicago and in Detroit, where there were, you know, the Hot Mix Five in Chicago, and um, I can't remember the crazy dude's name that was the sort of Johnny Appleseed of the techno scene, but radio and broadcasting to a mass audience with the, with new music is always a key part of an exciting breakthrough scene. Yeah, because I mean, again, there's you know only one radio dial. There's barely any internet. There's, you know, three channels on the television. People are going to check out what's going on. They're going to flip through the dial and look for something, especially if they know that there's these pirate stations 
playing stuff that that you know the government doesn't want you to hear and it's you know it's true all this uh, there was there was jungle radio stations hardcore radio stations i really liked how there were there was a fine tradition of 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 these high rises these uh, these kind of council uh, high rises uh, low income and they would stick these antennas on the outside of the 23rd floor or whatever else like that anytime you know somebody would show up They'd move the antenna around, but they they'd keep going. And it was there was there was good coverage, different stations for different cities and different regions of London. And uh, they really there was a there was a thriving industry of it. The UK people really did pirate radio well, both in the 60s when they were doing it off of ships off the coast, and in uh, the the 80s and 90s when they were when they were DIYing it uh, more for 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 the average for the for the proletariat. Absolutely. And the other thing that they um, talk about, and we'll, we'll go ahead and play our last song snippet, and this is women DJs are suddenly a thing. And, and you know, we've used he to refer to DJ all the way through this show, and it's on purpose because it was a totally sexist, male-dominated era. But that's changed. This is something from 2021. This is Louisa. Oh, Louisa. Louisa. Okay. Thank you. Doing numb and undone. And that was Louisa doing numb and undone. And thank you. I hadn't I hadn't checked that out from 2021. Uh, fun stuff. So, what's your take? Who are the important female DJs? Where do they come from, and when? Oh, well, I mean, uh, the 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 main thing that the chapter kind of underscored for me is how pathetic. Uh, the, the scene was uh, in terms of uh, female uh, accessibility, because I think that's really what it was, was the ability for women to be able to break in and, and be uh, and be a part of it. Um, so when you're going through through the list of, of, of names, it's almost uh, depressing because you, you have to imagine for everyone that slips through like a, a Lisa Loud or an Ann Savage, who Ann Savage was one of the reasons I became the DJ Doc Savage was I was a portmanteau, a split up of, of, of her name and Doc Martin, uh, another the DJ that we mentioned earlier from from San Fran. I would I combined their names into one new one, but uh, you know for for everyone like her, you got to figure that there were so many others that weren't allowed through because there was only room for one female DJ on the flyer, if that, and there was uh, only room for female DJs maybe in a genre where it was socially acceptable for there to be female DJs. They talk about Money Punny uh, being a uh, a popular house DJ, and I think house was more open, uh, mainly because maybe it had more bar owners and venue owners that that were interested in putting a woman up there for uh, promotional reasons. But, uh, you know, it was uh, it was rough going. And I think even, you know, not just in the 80s and 90s uh, was it was it hard, but even in the oddies, uh, I think maybe in 2010 was I think when it started turning around. And 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 now it's it's finally turning into something where I picked that Louisa track because now it doesn't matter what genre it is. You can have this hard techno and you can have tons and tons and that genre is saturated with really good 
uh, female representation, be it DJs uh, or promoters or producers, putting out cutting edge stuff. Like uh, the women are no longer just participating, they're leading the way. Uh, DJs and producers like Rez and Whipped Cream are, are making the most forward music of their genre. Same with Louisa, Amelie Lenz. Uh, and I think they talk shit about Nina Kravitz, but she's still there representing, uh, you know, 15 years after the book was updated or whatever it was. Yeah. And so go Zoomers is all I can say that so, so much like less sexist a generation than my own Gen X and definitely than the boomers were and even than the millennials. And so this is wrapping up our discussion of their chapter on outlaws. We've got two chapters left in this book, superstar and sellout. And so um, we are covering it for Ryan Harkness and myself. I'm Nate Wilcox. We've been covering last night, a DJ saved my life, the history of the disc jockey and come back for those last final chapters before we move on to Simon Reynolds energy flash. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. They'll be talking about the emergence of a wave of superstar DJs. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey, is published by Grove Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.